Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Suzanne DiMaggio, specializes in what is called Track 2 diplomacy with countries that have limited or no diplomatic relations with the United States. In practice, this has meant that she has spent countless hours over the last nearly 20 years in meetings with North Koreans and Iranians. Those encounters have led to some major diplomatic breakthroughs. We kick off defining our terms a little bit. She explains what track two diplomacy means as opposed to, say, quote, back-channel diplomacy. We then preview an upcoming major summit between Kim Jong-un and South Korean President Moon Jae-in. And that meeting, of course, will lay the groundwork for the Trump-Kim meeting, scheduled at this point sometime in May or June. And we discuss the diplomacy surrounding that meeting in great detail. So as things heat up with North Korea in the coming months, Suzanne DiMaggio is someone that you will see quoted often on TV and in radio, and so I wanted to use our conversation to learn how she got involved with this kind of very unique diplomatic endeavor, and she has some really great stories to tell. And I should say these stories also include her experiences facilitating Track 2 diplomacy with Iran, which led to some really key breakthroughs. As always, feel free to get in touch with me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I do love hearing from you. I love knowing what's on your mind and also your suggestions for people I should interview or topics I should cover. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Okay, now here is my conversation with Suzanne DiMaggio, who is a senior fellow with the New America Foundation and director of the U.S.-Iran Initiative at the New America Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, the way I define back-channel, and I think uh, many people do, is it implies that you're actually working, uh, you're independent, but working on behalf of the government. So uh, even though you might be unofficial, you're taking on a mission, uh, working uh, or representing uh, the U.S. government. And that's different from what I do, certainly. Mm-hmm. And, and w- so what, what's then track two? It's when you uh, are, it's sort of like cultural exchanges or just I- informal, non affiliated Well, I, the easy way to look at it is track one is formal government to government relations. So that's. Uh, communications and relations between governments on a normal basis. Track two is independent um, representatives, usually NGOs, scholars, um, uh, 
uh, interacting with uh, governments um, or representatives of governments. So that's the main difference. And then to make things even more complicated, uh, there's something called Track 1.5. Oh, do tell. Uh, <laughs> and that is, um, and, and that's technically probably closer to the most of the work I do, uh, because when you're interacting with governments with uh, that the U.S. has very uh, infrequent official relations or no official relations at all, Tech, te- you have a tendency to be dealing with uh, the governments of those countries. Mm-hmm. So in the case of North Korea, that's certainly the case. There's no tradition of non-governmental organizations in North Korea. Uh, so you're really dealing with the government, hence the term Track mm-hmm. 1.5. Okay, no, no, that makes sense, because you on, on the American side are not uh, a government official, but they are. Absolutely. Um, so we, uh, that, that's a very helpful defining of terms because I believe we'll, I suspect we'll be kind of tossing out these terms throughout this conversation, given the nature of, of your work over these years. Um, but I, I would love to kick off by getting your, your take, your perspective on this upcoming, uh, meeting between Kim and, uh, Moon, which is, you know, I suppose it's happening just a, a couple weeks from when, uh, we're talking today, which is, uh, you know, when was it Thursday, April 16th or something like that? I think it's actually happening on April 27th. Mm-hmm. April 27th. Okay. So towards the end of the month. And I think it's, um, you know, a lot of seems like a lot of preparation is going into that particular summit, and obviously, it is a momentous occasion for the leaders of both North and South Korea to be meeting. If we step back a little bit, we can uh, see it's really the culmination of a great deal of uh, diplomatic effort. I think exerted by President Moon of South Korea. Uh, extending um, dialogue to Kim Jong-un. And um, I think the South Koreans have done a lot of heavy lifting in terms of diplomacy uh, to get us to this point. And in terms of timing, uh, I, for one, am uh, reassured that this summit is actually taking place before the proposed Trump-Kim Jong-un summit. I think the sequencing in this case is correct. What? Why? Why is that? Like, what's what's significant about the sequencing? Well, I do think uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is if uh, there has been enough preparation for the Trump uh, Trump Kim Jong Un summit. Uh, it's a short amount of time, and there is some direct dialogue. But I do think having the South Koreans being able to meet Kim Jong Un face to face, I think that would be a um, very important opportunity for him to discuss with uh, Kim uh, the expectations uh, that uh, President Trump might have in a summit and actually maybe to make some uh, progress on coming to um, a common understanding of what those expectations are and how to get there. Uh, presumably, there's also some outcomes in terms of like the bilateral relationship between North and South that one might expect from this kind of meeting. Absolutely. I think that will be the primary um, topics for discussion because there is this ongoing inter-Korean dialogue, and uh, that includes a whole set of issues, not 
necessarily related to U.S.-North Korea relations. Mm-hmm. So that is, in and of itself, an important um, set mm-hmm. of discussions. So it's interesting. So there's kind of like two ways to think about the outcomes of this meeting, one in terms of the North-South relations, the other in terms of the ways in which it serves as a prelude to the Trump-Kim meeting. Trump-Kim meeting. Yeah, I think that's right. The way I look at it is I see the inter-Korean dialogue and then hopefully the U.S.-North uh, Korea dialogue will get up and running. I see them as complementary tracks. And I think the, uh, if I understand it correctly, I think one of the goals is at some point to then have a trilateral meeting that would be hmm. U.S., South Korea, and North Korea. So um, what outcomes specifically uh, can you see sort of feeding into the, the fr- from the, the Kim Moon Summit, do you see feeding into the Trump-Kim Summit? Is is there, like, uh, what what's, like, our terms of reference might help, might be defined, or, like, what, what sort of... What sort of ideas or, or things might, might feed into that? Maybe some general principles on how to move forward with dialogue. Uh, and this is not something that the U.S. hasn't already discussed with North Korea in previous attempts to have engagement. Uh, so I don't think it would be recreating uh, the wheel or reinventing the wheel, I should say. Um, but I do think um, knowing how assertive uh, President Moon has been in pursuing dialogue, I think it would be a great opportunity for him to review directly with Kim um, an agenda that would uh, work for a U.S. DPRK dialogue. Um, and like, What would elements of that agenda be, do you think? Well, I think denuclearization is obviously going to be the top of the list. And here, um, uh, it seems at least what we're hearing in recent days, uh, a confirmation that the North Koreans um, have agreed to discuss denuclearization is actually quite a positive um, step. But I think other things that would be on the agenda include nonproliferation, um, I would certainly think that uh, any discussion about gaining reassurances from the North Koreans that they will not uh, sell or transfer nuclear weapons, nuclear-related technology, and even chemical and biological weapons would be a priority agenda item for the United States. Um, on this question of denuclearization, I think actually that the media has done a pretty good job uh, of um, explaining how the two sides here, the, the U.S. and North Korea, approach this question, this definition of what denuclearization means in two different ways. Uh, could you maybe sort of, for people who, who are unaware, sort of explain what the different definitions of this denuclearization idea are and, and why that's significant, that sort of this, there is some ambiguity in this term? Yes, it is, I think, an important uh, issue. And my hope would be that this would be clarified before Kim and Trump meet, either um, in face-to-face meetings between Americans and North Koreans as preparation. So the main difference is in the past, we've seen North Koreans uh, think of denuclearization as uh, um, relating to the entire uh, peninsula uh, and even, we could say, the Northeast Asian region. So the expectation there would be um, the uh, no U.S. strategic assets in the region that are nuclear-capable. Uh, some even interpreted to include 
um, a dismantlement of the nuclear umbrella we provide to our allies in South Korea and Japan. I mean, it's a rather extensive definition, and you could see how that would be unacceptable um, at any point in the near future or even mid midterm future. And I think the U.S. Um, perspective on denuclearization is specifically on, on North Korea's nuclear program uh, when we talk about denuclearization. But clearly, the North Koreans see it more as a reciprocal um, way of looking at it. Um, can I ask, and, and, you know, I don't mean to have you sort of predict the future, but mm-hmm. what, I mean, what are your expectations or how high are your expectations for, uh, this meeting? I mean, I'm actually personally, you obviously are, have your ear closer to this. I don't, I'm not convinced that this meeting's going to happen in the first place. Um, yeah. but I, I, I'm wondering sort of what you expect it, or if there will be any meaningful outcome. I mean, we're also seeing that this meeting's happening now that, you know, John Bolton is, is the, the ambassador who has been, uh, you know, adamantly opposed to these kinds of, of talks and some of the concessions that might be embedded in uh, diplomatic solutions. So uh, I'm just sort of wondering what your expectations are. I actually think it is going to happen oh, for well. better or for worse. <laughs> And, uh, you know, keep in mind, originally, the the, the time frame floated was uh, uh, sometime in May. And already now we heard President Trump say maybe early June. So maybe it will be delayed, but I think it will happen. And if it's delayed, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. That's more time for preparation. Um, so I, th- I think the um, there are two, uh, I would as- assess two key um, uh, expectations on the part of President Trump. In other words, how would President Trump um, measure uh, this, whether or not the summit is a success? And I see two main areas. The first is that he can come out of the summit and say that uh, he was able to have great chemistry with Kim Jong-un, that he was able to do what no other American president has done uh, before, and that is to be able to build a relationship with a leader of North Korea. I think that would be very important to him. And given his um, inclination to, uh, or his like for authoritarian types, I have uh, very little doubt that he'll mm-hmm. um, be able to accomplish that. <laughs> yeah. But the second, the second thing is more tricky, it's trickier, and that is, I think he wants to come out of this meeting and say he reached agreement, or he got the North Korean leader to agree to denuclearization. Uh, so that's where the prep work really comes in. Uh, I think before they even get to the table, before they're even mm-hmm. in the same room, that's where uh, all the um, work needs to be done. And if the president can come out of that summit and say, uh, we've agreed um, uh, uh, in in principle that we are going to begin a process, and the end goal of that process is denuclearization. That would be a success. Uh, there wouldn't be any timeline to it, and certainly no um, concrete details. Uh, then uh, handing it off to the professionals and the diplomats to work out those details, I think, would be a good ne- next step, a necessary next step. Now, uh, I'm wondering on, on the flip side, you know, one of my concerns uh, about this meeting, and, and I think it's something kind of widely shared uh, by um, 
you know, by, by, by you know, liberals say like me is that this, you know, this meeting might be set up to fail, uh, and that, um, failure might accelerate the, the, the military option. Yes. That's the, that's my biggest concern too, is that, uh, if it's disaster, uh, then a failed summit will undermine any prospects for future dis- diplomacy. And certainly with people now like John Bolton in the mix, you can see how they would use that as a uh, uh, excuse or a pretense to say, well, we've tried diplomacy with uh, Kim Jong-un and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. So now we have to move on to uh, other options. And we know what that means. Likely it means military options. So right now, uh, the military options, I think there's um, a great deal of agreement among experts that those options are not viable. But in the scenario you just brought up, you can see how suddenly uh, in with the failure of diplomacy, uh, these options would raise their ugly head again, and they would they could appear unavoidable. So that is the greatest risk I see, and that's why I stress um, preparation, uh, the key role of the South Koreans, I think, um, in, in helping to shepherd this through. And at the end of the day, for Trump himself, um, you know, having him invested in this process, because let's be clear, he needs a win. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a deal with North Korea would be a big win for him. Uh, So I think that is one of the biggest things. (laughs) Those of us who uh, support diplomacy to resolve these issues have going for us is Mm -hmm. that this president has a gigantic ego, and he needs a win, especially in the foreign policy column. He has none, absolutely none. Uh, So that, I think, will be a big motivating factor. Well, at this point, do you have a sense of which outcome is more likely? It's really hard to say at this point. I think if, you know, a lot depends on the U.S. strategy. If Trump and the American team go into this summit with the notion that they're going to put a piece of paper on the table that calls for North Korea to denuclearize uh, in the immediate future, uh, that's a non-starter. Uh, I don't see that happening. But it, and, and if they say take it or leave it, then obviously that's not going to work either. Um, but if they go into the summit with a plan of uh, denuclearization that happens over time and is a process, uh, an action-for-action process, then I think that stands a chance. Uh, I don't think it would happen anytime soon, but um, it would be time frame to be determined. I think that's the only way this is going to work. So as these talks uh, ramp up and, and heat up, you will be someone that a lot of my listeners will will see on TV and will hear on NPR, uh, and, and frankly, they, they probably you know already are. You're, you're someone I always uh, when when I see your name quoted in, in papers on the stories, I, I always be sure to pay attention. Um, I uh, would be curious to to learn sort of the longer story of how you first got into track 1.5 diplomacy with uh, with North Korea in particular. And we could talk about Iran and, and, and your, your other work as well, but I'd love to sort of just first learn how you got started uh, with North Korea on, on these kinds of um, informal diplomatic channels. Well, actually quite early in my career, I was working um, at an organization that was doing similar work with 
uh, it was the Soviet Union transitioning into Russia. Hmm. Uh, and it was really my first job out of college. And well, what, 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 what job was that? What was the organization? <laughs> it, it was the United Nations Association. Oh, yeah. Which is an NGO. UNA. Here in, in UNA USA. Well, the UN exactly. Foundation, which is now, I think, is, is a partner or runs the, the UNA USA, uh, they support uh, my blog and, and in, you know, in this podcast as yes, well. Yes, so, I know yeah. that. That's yeah, terrific. Yeah. So you're aware of UNA. Oh, so they're, yeah, yeah, they're great. Early. They're great. So I was the person, you know, because it was my first job that was tasked with going to the airport to meet the Soviet-Russian um, delegation. Very cool. That was UNA USA. Town. Wow. Good. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. So that that's what that was my key job, and then uh, we would have meetings here in New York, and um, around the table would be people like Brent Scowcroft, Condi Rice, Joe Nye, um, you know, all the major names in international affairs of that day, uh, and it was just um, fascinating to me to see how in such a informal uh, context and atmosphere how much could be talked about. And then I went on to see the Soviet-Russian participate, participants go on to uh, form the new government after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, which was equally fascinating. And uh, my own personal interests have always been countries that, in terms of diplomacy, that U.S. doesn't have relations with. So it was putting two, to two, two and two together that this would provide could provide an informal channel to those countries. Well, can, can I ask where where do you think your interest in um, countries that U.S. does not have formal relations come from? I wish I could tell you. I just feel um, it was just a gap that I saw in traditional diplomacy. Um, you know, I remember thinking early in my career that I would go into a government job, and I remember speaking to a, a diplomat and. I mentioned the countries I was interested in, and the response was, well, Suzanne, if you go into government, you'll never be able to talk to <laughs> officials from those countries. There you go. And uh, that was sort of a wake-up call for me. So I really felt at that point compelled to find a more entrepreneurial path. And I think that's why, although I work very closely with various governments, including our own, um, it seemed like a natural uh, direction for me to go. So uh, on North Korea specifically, what was your first entry point into you know, the, this uh, track 1.5 diplomacy, let's say? Well, it's so interesting because, you know, while I was at UNA, my first entry point was, uh, it was actually a track two that brought together representatives from the countries in Northeast Asia and the U.S., including North Korea. Uh, so also Japan, Russia, China, um, and the U.S. And uh, so that was my first point of entry. And what was and, what was the goal of, of that first kind of point of entry, that, that first track to uh, Well, it was looking at the idea of cooperative security in the region to advance um, stability and uh, bring together, uh, of course, North Korea with others in a informal atmosphere to discuss the, the many issues that divided us. Um, and over time, uh, being involved in those issues, I have to say I became a little disenchanted. It seemed very, quite hopeless, the case of North Korea. And, and that is when I actually turned my attention to Iran, <laughs> which I thought would be the uh, 
the easy the easy way to go. And uh, you know that was almost uh, eighteen years ago. So so when yeah so ago. at what point did you find this the did the hopelessness seep in? That was probably like around when the Bush administration came after um, after the the agreed framework sort of formally fell apart. That's exactly right. Yes, and that's when I thought uh, I continued to have a profound interest in North Korea and the region. But I thought for my own work, um, I might want to try some some other uh, approach and other countries. And that's when I started focusing on Iran, which is equally fascinating. And then also a little bit later, Myanmar. Well, can, can I ask, I mean, so it's interesting to me because um, I would not think, although it's obviously the case, that the skills of these kind of, of track two uh, diplomatic initiatives are, are transferable across regions that you know, it doesn't take sort of a regional expert in North Korea to, to do it. It takes someone who is sort of an expert in, in track to diplomacy. Does, it, does that make sense? It does. It makes sense. And I was just having this conversation. As you can imagine, I meet a lot of students who are interested in similar work and trying to forge a career in this area. So they're always asking for advice. And I was just having this very conversation. What's more important, the regional expertise or the functional expertise. I mean, in the case of North Korea, my technically my regional expertise is Northeast Asia, but I also was gravitating towards the Middle East. I really was not wanting to make a choice, even though throughout my career I've been forced to try to do so and I've resisted. But in terms of the functional expertise, you know, I think what I've learned over time is that, um, you know, even... We live in uh, the technical age, and uh, even with the advancements we've had, I've found that nothing can replace the value of face-to-face engagement, especially with adversaries, that happens over a sustained period of time. It's enormously important, and um, when our government doesn't have uh, uh, official relations with these countries, how do you uh, achieve that? You know, foreign service officers uh, rarely never get the opportunities to meet with Iranian officials, North Korean officials. Um, so this, to me, seemed like a way to bridge that, to fill that uh, void. So so you've been amazingly successful at, at, at this. And I, I guess I'm curious to learn, like, what unique skill sets do you bring to, to, to make these happen? Like, what what are the skill sets embedded in facilitating these kinds of dialogues? Well, I think first and foremost, you have to approach it from um, the position of what is your end goal? What are you trying to achieve? And for me and people I work with, it's always been clear, and that is to advance U.S. interests, plain and simple. And to work from there, um, you know, unless you go into dialogue thinking, even with countries like North Korea and Iran, where the problems that exist between our governments are so profound and so deep, uh, you still have to be able to um, seek and have the ability to see uh, the potential for common interest as a starting point. Uh, I think that's very helpful. And then the other thing is um, uh, it requires a great deal of patience and persistence because you you do hit a lot of walls. Uh, when you're doing this kind of work and you can be um, discouraged and demoralized, but unless you try to find other ways around those walls, you're not going to get anywhere. 
So I think it takes a fair degree of persistence, um, you know, and also I think uh, being able to work, um, being able to maintain access to your own government at fairly high levels um, to ensure what you're doing holds some policy relevance. I think that's a skill Hmm. uh, that's developed over time and, to be frank, in order to do that, you have to have a certain amount of credibility. Mm-hmm. So, so can you tell me the story of, of how your engagement with Iran began? Yes, I can. It was actually, um, I was sitting in the UN General Assembly Hall, and uh, this was uh, in 1998, I believe, or 1999, and uh, speaking that day was President Hatemi of Iran. Hmm. And he proposed something that he called Dialogue Among Civilizations in response to uh, Harvard professor Sam Huntington, yeah. who had put forward the notion of clash of civilizations in which he posited that um, a clash between the West and Islam was inevitable. Uh, there was nothing no way around it, that it, we were destined to do this. And here was President Hatemi coming to the U.N. to say, well, actually, it's not inevitable. We can do something about it, and uh, our diversity actually gives us strength. So, of course, I was taken with that idea. But more than that, I really thought this would be a good vehicle to do some quiet track two around, hmm. um, if we can, get Americans and Iranians together. So that was how the seed was planted, and um, then reaching out to um, officials at the UN with the idea, um, and also to Iranian senior Iranian officials themselves. Um, I mean, this is some of the, this is the great thing about um, the naivete of youth <laughs> is you actually do things like that. And this was quite a number of years ago for me, uh, and. Um, actually putting forth the idea and getting positive response uh, was, um, I mean, it was what I expected then, but when I think about it now, it it was uh, pretty shocking. So what was that first meeting like with with the Iranians? Actually, it was almost disastrous. (laughs) Our first first meeting, the first meeting uh, actually canceled. Um, and, uh, just to get to that first meeting took a year of discussions of how we would do it, what the modalities would be and what the agenda would be. And, and what happened was access of evil. Mm. So this was, uh, you know, I think, I believe it was March yeah. 2002. Yeah. And, um, we had a whole meeting planned and the Iranians canceled it. Huh. So actually that was a big lesson because what, what we, what for me, one of the lessons was for track two to work, it's important during time, especially during times of crises, for us to continue. And that was really the case I made with the Iranians. Um, and then we got things back on track, but it took, um, uh, the first meeting wasn't until December of that year, so it took many, many months to get it back on track. And, and, and what was that did, first meeting? Like, what was it like? Uh, it was, uh, we met in Stockholm. I think there were, um, several Americans and several Iranians. And 
you know, for the beginning of this process, a lot of it, uh, you know, it's also a socialization process. And that's why meeting with the same participants over time is very helpful. Hmm. Because at the beginning, you're really um, forced to just go through your list of grievances. Mm-hmm. You've done me wrong. I've done you wrong. <laughs> and this is how. And there's no real way to avoid that. But suddenly, over time, you stop doing that. And when you meet, you can just start talking about the issues. Uh, we, don't, we no longer have to go through that list. I think that's, that's a sign of progress. So, I mean, are you able to draw a line either straight or tangential from those early meetings to the JCPOA in, in 2015? I think so, because early, I think uh, in the, our first couple of years, we actually put forward some proposals that, um, at least in the parameters, look very similar to what the JCPOA turned out to be. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think uh, even at that time, uh, not publicly but privately to U.S. officials, we did come forward and endorse the idea of allowing the Iranians to uh, um, do uh, uranium enrichment on their soil. And keep in mind that back then they only had 300 spinning centrifuges compared to uh, you know the 20,000 centrifuges when the deal was finally struck. Mm-hmm. We would have gotten a much better deal had we done it back then. Um, so I think uh, in, th- in those terms, we were maybe a little ahead of our time, but I think also laying the groundwork for um, official dialogue uh, to begin uh, I think we were helpful in that way. And that, that official dialogue sort of began with the Europeans, right? I mean, and, and it was the Europeans, oh, right? That it was it was the Europeans that sort of impressed upon Condoleezza Rice at the time, the idea that, that they should be the, you know, I think it was like the EU3 or something like that. Uh, that, that was... Um, That's exactly right. Okay, okay. Yes. See, I was reporting on this at the time. It's all kind of coming back to me now. <laughs> this is, yes, this is and, why, yeah. and we also, we yeah. presented a, a major paper to... Condoleezza Rice and um, members that she brought together, members of the State Department. What was unique about the paper is we wrote it, we jointly wrote it with the Iranians. I hmm. think that was the first. And um, we uh, distributed it to two audiences, senior officials in our government, and the Iranians uh, distributed it to senior officials in their government. But at the end of the day, um, the decision on the U.S. side was not to move forward with engagement at that side. And, uh, you know, the Iranians also, um, you know, when one wanted to engage, the other side didn't. This is the curse we had been living mm-hmm. for how many years? And, um, you know, with the JCPOA and particularly the secret uh, official discussions that were led by Bill Burns, mm-hmm. that was really the turning point, I think. And yeah. um, I think in those conversations, uh um, Burns was able to convey to the Iranians some important things, including the notion that the United States would be agreeable to allowing them to enrich uranium on their soil, give, you know, with the um, assumption that it would be heavily monitored and verified. And I think that part, that, um, I don't want to call it a concession, but in a lot of ways it was a, U- a U.S. concession. Mm-hmm. Uh, really opened the path to the JCPOA. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting, and I'm wondering what the parallel here is to the the North Korea negotiations. Just just in that, it seems like it started with you and your track two diplomacy, and then it sort of moved to secret talks uh, that were you know track one secret talks, and then it became like a, a public thing. Um, yeah, so I think for, first let's keep in mind that both cases are completely different. I'm well mm-hmm. aware that um, uh, North Korea has a nuclear program. Iran has never had a nuclear weapons program um, and has never produced a bomb. And there are many other. I've traveled to both countries, and they couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. But I think my starting point for dialogue with both and I drew lessons from the Iran dialogue for North Korea, is how do you engage an adversary? Uh, how do you begin that process? And that, that's where I think the biggest lessons are. And even as we move forward now with official talks and the summit, uh, there are lessons there to be learned. Um, and I think um, also the, the deal itself, when you look at the Iran nuclear deal, uh, one of its most innovative aspects is its uh, intrusive uh, monitoring uh, aspects and the verifications that it puts in place. And what what puzzles me is what, you know, the, the Trump administration should be holding up this deal as a model for North Korea because the verification side is so stringent mm-hmm. um, and saying this is our this is our new gold standard. Uh, going forward, all deals we cut will will have this element, and instead they're undercutting the deal. And I think it's sending a real ter- a terrible signal to the North Koreans on different levels. I, I don't know if you were watching the uh, Pompeo hearings this morning, but he was asked uh, by a Democratic senator, you know, do you agree with the IAEA assessments that the Iranians have been abiding by the strictures of the JCPOA? And he said, yes. I have no reason yeah, not to. I, yeah. Yeah. There's no way to. I mean, our own intelligence estimates yeah. indicate, and I think even Israeli intelligence uh, backs that up. Uh, so we know the Iranians are um, complying with the deal, and uh, I think now they're trying to um, make the case that you know they can't uh, counter argue against it. They can't argue against it. So now the the, the mantra is we need to fix it. Well, I think, first of all, we need to comply with our own mm-hmm. uh, commitments before we move on to uh, anything else. So uh, when did your engagement with the North Koreans start, um, like this time around? Yeah, it actually began in around 2016, 2015, 2016, and really began in earnest uh, during this last two-year period, I would say, a little over two years now. And and what was the like the, the first kind of iteration of, of that engagement? Uh, the first iteration was I was invited to Pyongyang, oh. uh, which was interesting. That's, kinda, that, that's, <laughs> and, that's a good uh, indication. Um, they had uh, become aware of my work with Iran and uh, the dialogue, and uh, that intrigued me that they uh, were interested in something similar. And, um, you know, of course, I was very skeptical because I, uh, even though I wasn't involved in North Korean Track 2 for a while, I did try to keep up with what was happening, and it seemed to me not a lot was happening. Um, so I really had some uh, reservations about moving forward, and um, 
because uh, it is a you know a big uh, effort to get these things underway. But after talking to the North Koreans a couple of times, I thought um, I think it's definitely worth a try. So uh, we then had a meeting towards the end of the Obama administration, and uh, what, what was discussed of, at that meeting in, in Pyongyang? Uh, that the meeting in Pyongyang was really a way to uh, just uh, discuss um, a broader meeting we would have ha- we were planning in Stockholm. Uh, what the parameters of that meeting would be, what the agenda would be, participants. Uh, it was a lot of logistics. But at the same time, I think one of the things I tried to convey at that meeting was um, the process of track two uh, that I feel um, is the best way to proceed. I think uh, it requires meeting uh, over a sustained period of time, meeting regularly and being in communication between meetings. And I know a lot of other track twos weren't doing that. So that was something I tried to impress upon them, how it was important to maintain that uh, steady dialogue over time. And it's uh, difficult. Um, We certainly are not the well-honed machine we are with the Iranians at this stage of the game. Uh, And we may never get there, but for me, I think it's been well worth the time. And then, uh, uh, in um, June, in May 2017, we in one of our meetings, a uh, U.S. official did come with us, and uh, that was the first face-to-face interaction between a Trump administration official and North Korean officials. And, and that was the uh, breakthrough. Well, I think that discussion uh, did lead to um, the release of uh, Otto Warmbier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the representative was uh, Ambassador Joseph Yun, so he gets full credit for that. And then, of course, then he went to um, Pyongyang to negotiate the release, successfully negotiate the release of Warm Beer. The outcome, obviously, was um, not what anyone was expecting, mm-hmm. but um, it was a breakthrough in the sense that um, the first interaction did lead to a direct outcome. You know, in, in you know, your conversations with the, the North Koreans, um, I suppose like what, what is like a perception about North Korea's outlook on the world that the rest of us who do not have the opportunity to engage with North Koreans directly uh, might not fully appreciate? There are a few ways to approach that question. I think one of uh, the ways I like to think about it is um, you really get a sense of how isolated they are uh, in uh, not only the region but the world. And um, also, when you talk to them over time, you get a sense of how high their threat perception is. Uh, you know, their worldview is really, um, you know, it's, it's a dangerous world. Uh, they don't have any friends. Uh, they have a lot of enemies, and they live in a region where, um, obviously, uh, we're um, there in a militaristic way, and they feel that. Uh, so one of the reasons I do like to travel there is to talk to, I do like to talk to officials in the place where they sit, where they work every day, and talk to them about these issues. You get a sense of how uh, they see it and uh how they see North Korea's place in the world, and that 
you know, again, you can't read that in a book. You really need to do that and spend the time doing that. The second thing is, I think, um, well, we don't hear about much in the media and here and elsewhere about North Korea is um, a lot of the focus, at least rhetorically, by Kim Jong-un is on economic progress. Uh, so although you hear about his speeches and how he's emphasizing the nuclear program, the other side of the coin is uh, economic progress, what they call the Byung-jin line. And I do think that uh, this, if indeed they are serious, and in our informal talks they've made mention of this on many occasions, that once their nuclear program is what they say is completed, they want to turn their attention to economic development. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have to test this. We can't take it at face value. But if it indeed is true, I think it offers the biggest point of leverage for us going into negotiations. Hmm. Um, one thing I'd be curious to get your take on is, you know, one assumption I have, uh, kind of combining the threads of, of Iran and North Korea is that, and I think it's an assumption shared by, by, you know, a lot of, of, um, supporters of, of the Iran deal for one is that by, um, undermining or pulling out or, uh, you know, reneging on the JCPOA, the Trump administration is, um, is is sort of undermining its own ability to achieve an agreement with North Korea. Is do you think North Koreans see it that way? Oh, I know they do. I think um I've had some conversations with North Korean officials where the Iran deal has come up even just recently. Um where Explain. one official yeah. uh one official made the case that if the North Koreans were to strike a deal with the U.S. and the Trump administration, they would have concerns about whether or not the administration would follow through on the deal. And they would also have concerns that if a new administration came in, that they would follow it, too. These are legitimate questions. I mean, of course, North Koreans have cheated on past deals. But I think what strikes them about this case, the Iran case, and I think what strikes me about it, is the, Iran, the Iranians haven't cheated uh, they have fulfilled the deal. They have fulfilled their side of the bargain. And I think that's one of the things the North Koreans can't understand. And, I, th you know, I can't say for sure, but I think um, certainly if I was a North Korean, I would, one of the conclusions I would reach is that maybe even if you strike a deal with the U.S. and you fulfill your side of the bargain, it still won't be enough because the, at the end of the day, the problem is the um, um, how the, how the U.S. sees the regime that that can't be reconciled, and that's a very bad signal to send to North Korea at this stage of the game. Uh, if our policy indeed is not regime change, and we do want to de-escalate and eventually reach a deal on denuclearization, then we should be saying, "Look, this deal, you know, to make this deal with the Iranians, we had to hold our nose. We didn't." think that um, uh, we're not bestowing legitimacy on the deal, but we made this deal because it advances U.S. interests and we'd like to do something similar with you. Uh, that's really the only way we're going to get to any real outcome if uh, denuclearization is something we want to pursue. Uh, well, Suzanne, we're, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much. This is uh, so, so helpful. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to plug or want to mention or, or any, any other sort of parting thoughts you wanted to, to leave us with? 
No, I mean, I think uh, um, certainly when I first heard that President Trump had agreed to have a summit with Kim Jong-un, I cringed at first. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I don't think it's the ideal situation um, for many reasons. But I do think at the end of the day, um, a step towards diplomacy is something we should all support, uh, certainly in... um, you know, instead of uh, military action, which I don't see as a viable option. So what I tell people is, if you can, help uh, move this initiative forward. If you have ideas, if you're uh, on the Hill and um, member of Congress, you should be uh, speaking out in favor of diplomacy. Uh, well, thank you. This this is very helpful. This is like a great scene setter for the next, uh, you know, two months of diplomacy. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Okay. Take care. Bye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Suzanne. And I, yeah, I think that conversation does a really helpful job of sort of setting the scene for diplomacy over the next couple of months, not just uh, with North Korea, but also with uh, Iran. We're uh, headed towards a, a fairly major inflection point in May when the president has to decide whether or not to set in motion the uh, leaving of the uh, JCPOA. And uh, don't forget to leave reviews of the podcast on iTunes. I still have some stickers left that I'll send you if you uh, leave a review. Just send me an email. And another huge thank you to everyone who is becoming a premium subscriber on the podcast. I have another uh, special bonus episode coming up soon that looks at a... Well, I'll I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll, I'll, I'll... let the suspense build a little bit. Anyway, uh, expect a new bonus episode hopefully sometime next week. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.